then I want to invite you to turn with me over to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Many of you know that last week we had our vacation Bible school here at Crossview Bible Church. And as I look out the window and see the smoke out there, I just even give praise to God that we were able to get through our entire week of VBS without having a forest fire and a brush fire and a bunch of smoke in the air. So praise God for his mercy to allow us to get through this week uh, with clear air. And uh, we are thankful for all of you who helped out with that ministry. We are pleased to report that uh, thankfully we had two um, small neighborhood clubs this week. Uh, One was at 8.30 a.m. and the other was at 10 a.m. And in total, we had about uh, 25 or so kids that came to our our clubs between those two different groups. And then we also had another online program that was going on, and kids picked up their crafts and their Bible stories, and they did that from home. And we had about another 40 kids that participated in that. So we estimate there were roughly about 65 children that were in our Vacation Bible School this year. And uh, we are so grateful for those of you who helped out with it, those of you that were here every day this last week, uh, teaching the Bible stories, uh, leading the crafts, uh, putting together the snacks, and everything else that went into that ministry. Thank you also to the men that were here early uh, to set up every morning. And it was just such a wonderful time to uh, hear the, the laughs and the giggles of these kids and to hear the Bible stories and to see everybody together once again. So it truly was a blessing and an answer to prayer in a time that we weren't quite sure if we would be able to have Bible school at all. We're grateful that God allowed us to pull that off and to see some real spiritual fruit from it as well. Well, the theme this last week was called Concrete and Cranes, and it was a construction theme this week, and kids love to learn about diggers, bulldozers, and cranes, Uh, but this is an appropriate topic for us as adults to think about for a few moments this morning. Uh, Construction, because the Apostle Paul uses that same metaphor of construction. One of the places that he does that is here in our text this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He talks about how we are to build our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. First, I want to begin by telling you a story, a story that many of you will be familiar with because it's told by Jesus toward the end of his famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus tells a parable of two men who went to build houses. And then a great storm came. The Bible says that the rain fell. The floods came and the winds blew and they beat on that house. What a great metaphor of the trials and the difficult circumstances that we face in life. That It's like rain that's pouring out, gushing, buckets full. It's like floods that are rising up, and if they continue on, it feels like they're going to drown us. It's like wind that is pressing and beating upon us and almost could blow us over. And Jesus says that of those two men, only one of their houses stood strong in the storm of life. It wasn't because of the paint color that they chose for the exterior trim. It wasn't because of the floor plan and the layout inside of the house. The only thing that caused one house to stand was its foundation. Jesus describes that one of those men chose to build his house upon a rock, a solid, firm foundation, while the other person, perhaps looking for that oceanside view, For whatever reason that he was motivated, he went for some sand and he built upon the sand. And at first it seemed very sturdy and very steady. But when the storm came, the foundation eroded from right under the house. 
One man built his house on a rock, the other built it on a sand, on sand, and Jesus saves this story for the end of his sermon, saying, everyone who hears these words, speaking of what he had just preached, these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So how do we build our house, houses upon a firm foundation? How do we build our lives upon the solid rock? He says, when you hear my words, and not just simply be hearers. There were a lot of people listening in his day, but he says, and they do them. Those who listen and obey are those who are building their lives upon a firm foundation. By the same token, those who listen but ignore, those who listen or forget, those who listen and then choose willfully to disobey, they are building their lives upon a weak foundation like shifting sand. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, which is our main text this morning, we see that Paul is also using this building or construction metaphor. And he describes gospel ministry like a building. And he says that construction is going to take place in two phases. We're going to look at those two phases this morning. The two phases of the construction, the building up of the church and the expansion of the kingdom of heaven. First of all, there's the building inspection And then we're going to see the building expansion. First, the building inspection, and then the building expansion. So let's look, first of all, at Paul's description of the building inspection. This is where he has finished the first stage of the construction of the building, and he comes like an inspector to look over what has taken place. He does a survey. He does an assessment of what the current state of the building up of the church and the kingdom work is. Let me read for us what it says here in verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. In these opening verses of our text this morning, Paul is like an assessor. He is like an inspector that comes to look at the quality of the construction. And he says that as he looks at the work that's taking place in Corinth and thinks about the role that he played, he says that he was like a skilled master builder that laid a foundation for the rest of the building. That word master builder in Greek is the word architectone from which, of course, we get the English word architect. Our word traces directly back to the same idea of one who is a master builder. You know, none of us want to live in a house that was built by somebody that had no prior experience in construction. Nobody wants to work in a building that was built by a complete amateur with no kind of training, no experience whatsoever. You want someone who is a master builder. And this is not only a master builder, but he even goes on to add another descriptive word. This is a skilled master builder or a wise master builder. And if that's true physically with the buildings that we choose to enter into, how much more that should be true with the spiritual building? That is, the spiritual building of the church, the gospel ministry that is going on. We need to make sure that our work is skillful, that our work is quality, that we are giving our best to it, that we can step back and say, yes, the foundation is strong and it's built upon Jesus Christ. And it was done skillfully. It was done accurately. That's what Paul can say. 
You see, Paul put a lot of care and quality into his ministry. He gave them attention. He used all of his God-given talents. Unfortunately, many religious leaders use the church to advance their own career. But that's not what Paul does. Paul actually does exactly the opposite of that. He uses his gifts to advance the well-being of the church. You see that? He's using the gifts that God has given to him to build up and to advance the church. He doesn't care about his own personal reputation. He doesn't care about his accolades and his rewards. He cares about seeing this church built up in a way that is going to give God glory. In verses 6 through 9, which we haven't read yet, I'll read it for you in a moment, but Paul used a different metaphor. He used a farming metaphor, like a farmer who's out in his field. Notice with me what it says in verse 6. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. That's completely true. That's exactly what Paul did. When he came to the city of Corinth, he planted the seed of the gospel. He took the unchangeable truths of Christ crucified and risen, and he planted that seed. And after he left, another gospel minister came into the city by the name of Apollos, and it's like he had the watering can. He had the spray hose, and so he was watering to allow that seed to germinate and to bring forth fruit. So Paul says he has a very important role to play, right? His role was to plant the church and plant the seed of the gospel into the hearts of these people. But he didn't do all the work because after he left, someone else came and they watered the seed. But who caused the gospel growth? Who is it that actually caused those people to trust in Jesus Christ, to repent of their sins, and to receive the free gift of salvation? Was it Paul? No. Was it Apollos? No. He says, I planted and Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. You see, all salvation comes from God alone. Salvation belongs to to the Lord. He is ultimately the one that is at work. He is the one that can transform anyone. You and I don't have the power to change a person. Only God can do that. And so Paul properly gives glory to God as the one that gave gospel growth in this field of spiritual harvest. Verse 7, he says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. Let me just pause for a moment and encourage you, friends. If you've got an unsaved family member or a friend, you have the responsibility to be sowing the seed of the gospel. Maybe that's inviting them to church. Maybe that's giving them a Bible. Maybe that's inviting them over to the house for a barbecue and praying before the meal and just looking for opportunities to talk about spiritual things. Maybe it's praying for them when they're going through a trial, looking for chances to share the hope that is in you. You're going to plant. In some cases, you're going to water on what somebody else has been doing that you may never even meet this side of heaven. But make no mistake, you are not going to cause that person to be saved. You and I don't have the power to cause a person to be reborn. That's God's department. We can plant, we can water, but God is the one who gives the growth. He is the one that gives the increase. 
In verse 8, we see how there's unity in gospel work. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. Now, he's going to revisit that theme of receiving our proper wages for our work later on in our text this morning. But he says here in verse 9, we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. And at that point, he's going to switch metaphors from the harvest field over to the construction yard. Moving from church planting now to church building. So Paul describes himself as a skilled master builder. And a building always starts with the what? The foundation, right? It has to start with the foundation. You don't build anything else until first you have the foundation secure. And that's precisely what Paul has done. He says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Again, he's referring to himself and his ministry and Apollos in his ministry. He is the one that laid the foundation. Apollos came along and he built on top of that, found, that foundation. Paul is referring to a majestic building. Maybe he's even envisioning one of the nearby temples there in Corinth the people that received this letter and lived in that ancient city. There were many temples in Corinth. Some of them still have remains that stand to this day. I shared a picture on Facebook last night of the Temple of Apollos, or Apollo rather. And the Temple of Apollo had uh, 38 massive pillars that I believe were about six feet in diameter. And 38 of them. And to this day, some 2,500 years later, after that temple was built in the ancient Greek period, still there are seven of those pillars that are standing up tall. What would allow something so strong and so sturdy to last through the storms, through the earthquakes over all these centuries? And the answer is a firm foundation. So as he's writing, he's referring to a temples that were there in that day, but he says that there's another temple there's a temple that's not built with hands and a temple that's not a physical structure built out of stone. There's a spiritual temple. You and I are part of that spiritual temple. Look with me down to verse 16. He says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? This morning is very unique. We're back meeting remotely once again. A few of us here in our auditorium, our auditorium, but most of you are out there online watching and participating. There's something important about physical gathering. We should yearn and long to be back together. But friends, take courage. Then in unique times like this, our identity does not change. We are still at this moment the temple of the living God. We are God's temple and guess who lives inside of us? The Holy Spirit. God's Spirit dwells inside of us. He has taken up permanent residence in all of his children. There's a warning in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. There's a severe warning here toward false teachers that would come in. And seek to undermine the work of the gospel ministry where Christ is building his church. 
where planters are building up the temple of the Most High God inhabited with the Holy Spirit, and then people will come along and destroy the work of the ministry. They will be severely judged for that. We are called to take care of our lives personally. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Young people, take care of your bodies. They are a gift from the Lord to be cherished, to be used wisely. Your body has the Holy Spirit inside of you if you've trusted in Christ. You need to recognize that you are a temple. And how should a temple be cared for? It should be watched over. It should be protected. It should be maintained and kept holy. We are the temple. We are being built up. So Paul is referring to a majestic building. There were buildings around there in Corinth, such as the ancient temple of Apollo. But there's a spiritual building, which is the church. And the foundation of our building, of this spiritual building, is none other than Jesus Christ himself. Paul has said this again and again in his ministry, that Christ is the foundation. There is no one else, there is nothing else that we should build our ministry upon and our church upon than Christ and him crucified and raised. That's why last week we spent special time just slowing down and parking on the gospel in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. How Paul determined to know nothing else but to deliver a first importance that Christ was dead and buried and raised again for our sins. Again and again, Paul says, Christ is the foundation. Christ is the foundation. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, just one previous chapter, he said, I decided to know nothing amongst you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Or you think over in Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, he says, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Or Ephesians chapter 2, where he says that we as the church are built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. You say, wait a second, I thought Christ was the foundation. Well, he's saying in this passage that the prophets and the apostles, those that gave direct revelation from God, they lay the foundation for the church. But guess who's the cornerstone of the apostolic ministry? Christ Jesus. He says, we as a church are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Same kind of language that we see here in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I need a firm foundation. You need a firm foundation. We all know what it feels like in days where we are being beaten and battered by this world and our foundation is beginning to shake because we're not keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ. Let me quickly just give you three ways that you can build a firm foundation upon Christ Jesus. I want this to be practical. It can seem so abstract. Oh, yes, I want Jesus to be my foundation. But what does that mean? What does that look like? Well, first of all, and most importantly, put all of your trust in Jesus Christ alone. Rest your full weight upon Christ. Look to him. Cling to him. Believe in him and let him scoop you up as the good shepherd that holds on to his sheep and knows each of them by name. Trust in Christ. 
Look to him. Believe in his death, his burial, and his resurrection, and what he did on your behalf. Claim his promises of his great love for you. He describes himself as the bread of life, and he invites you to feed upon him. He describes himself as the fountain of living water, and he invites you to quench your thirst in him. He says that the Son of Man is like the bronze serpent of the Old Testament that Moses lifted up in the wilderness, and those that had been bitten by venomous snakes, they looked upon that serpent, and they were healed. He says, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever would believe upon him will have eternal life. So first of all, if you want to build your life upon the one and only firm foundation, trust in Jesus Christ alone. Do that this morning if you've never done it. Say, God, I know I am a sinner. And the more I read this book, the more it exposes my evil and my wickedness and my rebellion against you. All of the wickedness in this world, it can be explained by the human condition of sin. Lord, I deserve your punishment. But thank you for sending your son to die upon a cross and accept my punishment. Thank you for raising him up on the third day and promising that whoever would believe in him and turn from their sins would be saved. God, I want to do that now. I want to do that this morning. I want to have this guilt wiped away. That, as David said, cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Oh, a heart as white as snow. It sounds so good. Could it be good, too good to be true? And God says, no, it's not too good to be true. He will wash your heart clean. And all of the filth and all of the guilt will be put aside and thrown into the deepest part of the ocean. And you can be saved and forgiven and clothed with the righteous robes of Jesus Christ. Put your trust in him this morning. That's what it first of all means to build your life upon the solid rock of Christ. But having done that, there's something else you need to do. You need to begin to listen to him speak to you. He's given us his holy word and he wants us to abide or dwell in his word every day. We're supposed to hide God's word in our heart that we will not sin against him. John chapter 8, verse 31, Jesus says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Friends, what happens in sports is ultimately irrelevant. What happens in politics, although it consumes so much of our attention, is ultimately irrelevant. What happens in social media is pretty frivolous. And yet we spend so much time occupying ourselves with what's happening in this world that we forget about eternal things. Abide in the word of God. Saturate yourself in the scriptures. The things of this book are of weighty importance, of eternal significance, they will provide you with the anchor and the firm foundation by which you can get through life. But there's a third way that came to mind when I thought about how we should build our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. That is, first of all, we need to trust in him, and then we need to abide in his word and saturate ourselves in scripture every day. But thirdly, we need to choose friends who will point us to Christ. There's many other ways that we can build upon Christ the solid rock, but think very carefully about the friends that you hang out with. 
the friends that you connect with online, the friends that you talk with on the phone, the friends that you do things together with. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, bad company corrupts good morals. That is, you put one bad apple in the basket with a bunch of good apples, and the good apples are not going to make the bad apple better. The bad apple is slowly going to corrupt the good apples. Bad company corrupts good morals. Choose your friends wisely because inevitably they will begin to rub off on you. That doesn't mean you can't have non-Christian friends. In fact, God has left us in this world so that we can be a witness to unbelievers. But we need to be very, very careful and on guard that our closest friends, those that we seek for advice and counsel, those that we serve with and do life together with, that they are people that share the same spiritual values that we are supposed to have. Because they will either tear you down or they will lift you up. The right kind of friends are those described over in Proverbs chapter 27 where the, um, the writer says, iron sharpens iron as one man sharpens another. Let me ask you this. Who is the iron in your life today? Who is the iron that you can go to that you know is going to shoot straight with you? They're sometimes going to ask you the hard questions but they do it because they love you. People that you enjoy spending time with, but people that you know, they're gonna lift you up and not tear you down. And afterwards, you don't have to go and clear your heart and your mind and your mouth from all the filth, but rather, you feel more like Christ just by spending time with them. They sharpen you. They lift you up. They build you more upon the foundation of Jesus Christ. Those are the kinds of people that we need to invest extended time with in our friendships in our relationships in this life. Well, those are a few ways that we can build our lives upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. Earlier this morning, we sang the song, Christ the Solid Rock, right? Well, that song was written by a man named Edward Mote. And Mote lived in England in the 19th century. He was saved at the age of 16, and he became quite a successful cabinet maker. And for a number of years, that was his trade. He was a, a master builder, a skilled workman in the area of woodworking. In fact, he even helped to build a church in Sussex, England. And after he had helped to construct this beautiful little chapel, the church turned to him and said, Mr. Moat, we would like to deed this property to you. We would like you to have the property on which this building was built. And he said, I can't accept that. He says, I only want the pulpit. And he didn't mean I want to take it home and put it in my closet. What he meant is, I'm willing to accept this sacred desk and preach from it. He says, I only want the pulpit. And when I cease to preach Christ, then turn me out of that. By God's grace, Edward Mote served there faithfully at that same chapel for the rest of his life until he was no longer physically able to minister shortly before his death. He said, the truths that I have been preaching, I am now living upon, and they will do very well to die upon. It reminds me of Tom Gibney. Uh, we were here in this very room when Tom's wife, Betty, passed away, and I met Tom in the middle of the aisle, and he had a smile on his face. His wife had just died, but he knew that Betty was with Christ in heaven. And he said, this is what we believe in. This is what it's all about. I was able to see the hope of the gospel and the peace of Christ in Tom's life because the truths that we live upon are the truths that we will die upon. As the song expresses that Edward Mote wrote, 
My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Well, Paul laid a solid foundation, didn't he? And as he inspected his work of the early planting and the early sowing of the church and the building up of the church, he said, it's been done well because it's been built upon Christ. But God had other fields for Paul to go and to sow. God had other buildings for Paul to go and build. And so Paul left that place of Corinth and others came and replaced him. One of them was a man we've already introduced. His name was Apollos probably named after that false god of Apollo. He was a Greco-Roman individual, but he was also saved and transformed by the powerful work of the gospel. And Apollos became a minister of Christ and a preacher of the good news. And this brings us to our second point, that we see not only the building inspection, but we see the building expansion. The building expansion. He says here that someone else is building. Look with me at verse 10. Someone else is building upon the foundation. Someone else is building. And Apollos is that one. Apollos is described in Acts chapter 18 as a Jew who was a native of Alexandria, Egypt. He came to Ephesus and he was an eloquent man. He was a good speaker. Probably a better preacher than Paul. Apollos was known for his eloquence and his ability to communicate. Paul actually downplayed his ability to communicate. I think he was probably still a good communicator. But he didn't come with the kind of eloquence that was known and the rhetoric and the skill of his day. He preached a pretty simple message. And he said he did that in order that the power would not be in Paul, but rather it would be in Christ. Well, God had uniquely endowed Apollos with the gift of communication. He was an eloquent man, and what's so good about this is he was also, it says, competent in the Scriptures. That's a powerful combination. When somebody can speak effectively, but they also speak truth. There's a lot of people that speak effectively, but many of them speak error. And you have to be doubly on guard because it sounds so good, but they're not speaking the truth. Apollos was both. He came to know the Scriptures well and to refute false teaching. But he did it so effectively. He was a master teacher like Jesus himself that people would gravitate to and listen to. And they saw that he spoke and taught with such authority. There may have been deep inside the heart of Paul almost a temptation to be jealous of Apollos. Because Apollos was such a skilled communicator that it could be people would turn their attention to him and forget about Paul that had been before him. But you see, Paul isn't jealous. What could have been a rivalry between Paul and Apollos, instead, Paul sees as an opportunity for teamwork. They each have a unique role to play. Paul laid the foundation. Apollos is building on it. Paul sowed the seed and planted the gospel. Apollos is watering the seed, and God is giving the increase. They each have a unique role to play. There's, there's no jealousy here or resentment here. There's no territorialism. Paul sees gospel ministry as a joint effort, and he wants to make sure that the ministry, after he leaves, stays in good hands. That's a noble desire. 
Several years ago, I was at a Bible conference down in Riverside, and someone came up to me, and they said, are you Stephen Jones? And I said, yeah. And they said, you pastor in Yucca Valley, right? And I said, yeah. He said, well, I once pastored your church. I thought, that's kind of funny. He said, my name is Scott Harrell. I was the founding pastor, and we went on to get to know each other better, and we friended each other online, and we continued to stay in touch. But Scott Harrell, who planted this church, was able to come up to a pastor that's here some 30 years later after he had left and to continue to pray for our ministry and to encourage those who are serving here to the present day. Scott has had some great words of encouragement for me and for all of you. In fact, a couple years ago when our church celebrated our 40th anniversary, I reached out to Scott and I said, would you be willing to just say a few words about your testimony and your memories of serving here at what was once called First Southern Baptist Church of Yucca Valley, now Crossview Bible Church? And he said, First Southern was founded on the solid teaching of the unchanging Word of God. I love that. It sounds like the Apostle Paul speaking. The solid teaching of the word of God is what the church was built upon, he said. He says it's had struggles and it's had victories. I'm so pleased that you are so solidly in the word and faithful to teach biblical truth in such a practical and powerfully way. I pray God will continue to guide you and the church in the years to come. Scott planted, Stephen waters, God gives the increase. And there's been others in between us that were part of investing in you. Building up this work of the church that God is doing to put his gospel on display here in Yucca Valley. Notice that the church is a work in progress. He says, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. No past tense. He doesn't say built upon it and now it's finished and we can step back and look at how beautiful it is. He says, no, somebody else is still building. You know, same thing that I read for you earlier over there in Ephesians. We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ is the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, the church is a work in progress. I know some people and they say, I I don't go to church Organized religion, man, it is so corrupt. Church is full of a bunch of hypocrites. Those people are so proud and obnoxious. Why would I want to go to church? That's just going to pull down my relationship with God. Friends, you've got to understand, God is not done with us yet. He is currently building us. He is currently refining us. I guarantee you walk into this church, you're going to meet sinful people. And you're one of them. We're all sinners, saved by grace. And the church is at times going to be messy and even dysfunctional. As I read this book, I find that God uses dysfunctional people all over in the Bible. The only one who wasn't dysfunctional was Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The rest of them, they were a mess. And God chose to use them anyway, didn't he? And I think often he chooses to use the weak things of the world and the foolish things of the world in order that he gets the glory and we don't. Are you going to see sin happen in a church? Yeah. But don't let that keep you away. That's an excuse. Satan is trying to use the fallenness of believers to keep you away from access to the rich and sweet and life-changing truth of the gospel. Christ says he will build his church. 
Christ describes the church as the bride of Christ, that he is washing by the water of the word. That washing is not done yet. So the church is a work in progress. Don't let the sins that you see turn you off and just shut down completely on the church. I know it's frustrating. I've been stabbed in the back before. Many of you have as well. It is so hard to be let down or double-crossed or betrayed or to hear about another scandal that takes place. But don't give up on the church. The church is the body and the bride and the building of Jesus Christ our Lord. He is vested in it. He is not giving up on it, and neither should we. We are sinners saved by grace, and we are a work in progress, and we see how that work is continuing to the present day, and it will not be finished until Christ calls us home. And one day, the bride will be exquisitely, brilliantly white with no more spot or blemish, and we will be presented to our bridegroom, Jesus Christ. Yes, the church is a work in progress, not finished yet. Christ's building is still incomplete. It's as though we should put up signs around the building as you enter in, pardon our dust, under construction, because that's essentially what's going on here. For the rest of our lives, there will be dust. There will be tarps. There will be pads down. There will be roped off areas. There will be some kind of construction going on, some kinds of deficiency that will be seen because Christ is still right now in the process of building his church. Some planted it. Some are watering it. Some started the foundation. Some are continuing construction, but the work will continue and we are called to get dirty and get involved in it. We are supposed to help build up the church into maturity and Christ-likeness. And lastly, as we close, there's one other thing I want to point out to you, and that is how in this passage, Paul immediately launches into the subject of judgment. He described that in verse 8, didn't he? We saw that earlier. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And now Paul picks up that theme again, having talked about construction of the church, both at the foundation level and the expansion level, now he goes back to the subject of reward. In verse 12, he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stone, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. You see, here in this passage, we have a vivid description of divine judgment and judgment upon believers. You say, wait a second. I thought that Christians weren't going to be judged. I thought God already judged Christ on our behalf and we weren't going to be judged. Be very clear of something here. The Bible says we are not going to be condemned. But the Bible never says we are not going to be judged. You see, you and I, we are going to be judged by Christ someday. We will give an account for what we have done in this life. Christian, you are not going to be judged in the punitive sense of condemnation for sin. If you have trusted in Christ, God already did that upon the cross. Amen. Praise the Lord. But you will be judged in the accountability sense. That is, you will be judged 
by giving an account and receiving a reward in accordance with your labor. Some, Paul says, will receive much reward. And sometimes people we don't expect. People that quietly serve behind the scenes, never having the spotlight. They may be some who built the most with gold and silver and precious stones. Mighty prayer warriors. Sacrificial givers. Humble servants. Others, they're going to be saved. Praise God, it's a free gift of salvation so that no one can boast. But they're going to have very little to show for it. People that essentially wasted their lives building with combustible materials like wood and hay and straw. And when they go through the fiery furnace of judgment, they will vaporize and be gone. The Bible says that Jesus will eventually wipe away every tear. There will be no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain. We long for that day when there will be an end of all human suffering. But I think on the day of judgment, there will be some tears. Some tears of regret. Oh, why did I waste my life on that? Why did I spend so much time and thought and effort and energy on things that had no eternal significance whatsoever? I think there will be some moments of regret and that once again, we will take comfort in the gospel. We will be reminded that our sins were forgiven that God used us in spite of ourselves, and we will enjoy our everlasting rest. But he says, for some, their work will be burned up. They will suffer loss, though they themselves will be saved, but only as through fire. As though Christ, the great firefighter, grabbed your body and pulled you out of the flames of hell, and you barely got out by the skin of your teeth. Nothing else was taken with you. Nothing else to show for it. Oh, we rejoice that you too can be in heaven. But how much better to spend this life from your youth all the way to your senior citizen days saying, I am a servant of Christ. He's given me a purpose. There are people that I need to bless. God, how do you want to use me? I want to lay up treasure in heaven. I don't want to be like those described in Malachi that were robbing God. I want to give my first and my best to the Lord. I want to hear the words from Christ. Well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your master. You were faithful with a little. Now I will give you much. There will be a judgment. And it's meant to be an incentive, not a scare tactic. It's meant to be an incentive for you and I to spend our life doing things of eternal value. Listen, how you serve your family And how you serve the church will in large part determine the kind of reward and responsibility that you will have for the rest of eternity. This passage, amongst others, teaches that there are going to be degrees of reward in heaven. And that one of our incentives for holiness and obedience is that we would receive a greater eternal reward. But it's all about the foundation, isn't it? And that's what we've been studying this morning. What is our foundation? Jesus Christ. He is the solid rock. I looked up on YouTube this week. I found a video, uh, and it was of a sinkhole in Florida. There was a family that was living in a residence. They thought they were built on solid ground. And then one day, they discovered that there was a 15-foot sinkhole that had sunk down right underneath their house. They ran inside the house which I don't know was a very smart thing to do, 
But they ran inside the house, they gathered some belongings, they got back out of the house, and they began filming on their cameras, and they watched the sinkhole expand and literally swallow the house. You can watch the video. It's about 30 seconds long. It's called Large Sinkhole Swallows Central Florida Home. Okay, there's probably multiple videos of this, but you can go and see it for yourself. And one moment, the house is up there, basically just hardly perched on top of this hole, It seems like it's just floating there, and then all of a sudden, this crack takes place across the house, and the entire bottom half sinks down into oblivion. Thankfully, nobody was hurt, but it's such a reminder that it's important that we build on a solid foundation, and I know people that have suffered the same kind of fate, that they thought for a while they were building on something that was solid, but then that foundation gave way. Because it wasn't the rock of Jesus Christ. Sometimes God lets us go through hard things to remind us, where's your foundation? Where's your foundation? Is it with your family? Is it with your money? Is it with your job? Is it with your belongings? Your toys? Your hope of retirement? No, 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 no. Your foundation must be in Jesus Christ, and only when you build upon him will you finally be on stable ground. Let's bow in prayer and ask God to help us to continue to do that. Father, we thank you for giving us the one and only true foundation. It's found in Jesus Christ. Lord, forgive us for the times that we are enticed by other things and we attempt to build our lives upon them. We admit none of those things ever last and they never satisfy. Our lives crumble when we put them on other things. Lord, help us to build our lives upon the firm foundation of your son. And I pray that you would help us to devote our lives to serving you, that we would hear those words, well done. We want to emerge through that fiery testing with gold and silver and precious stone that has not been consumed in the fire, but has been refined in the fire and is purified and ready for heaven. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the week of VBS that we had with our kids, that we tried to bring these truths down to a childlike level. And we pray that you would continue the seed of the gospel that we have sown, that others will water that and that you will give the increase. And we pray for our church, Lord. Let us gather again soon. We are a work in progress. We confess we are not what we should be, but by your grace, we are not who we once were. And we pray that you would continue. You who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it in Christ Jesus. And one day, we will look like Jesus. How we long for that day to be free of all sin and temptation, to be perfectly glorified in the image of Christ. Until then, Lord, help us to persevere. Help us to look upon you in every day to build our lives in the solid rock of Christ Jesus our Lord. We pray it in his name. Amen.